Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome once again to Venture Church this morning. Uh, for those of you who weren't here earlier, my name is Patrick, and I am one of the volunteers here at uh, Venture Church, and I am super excited to be able to share with you today. It's one of the things that I look forward to and enjoy a whole lot. Uh, you know, for the last couple of weeks, we've been going through the book of 1 Timothy, and we've been taking a deep dive into this personal letter from Paul to Timothy and the church at Ephesus. And Chris has been doing a fantastic thing. He's been going through and help us, helping us to see the context of why this church, where this letter was first written and even a little bit of why it was written. Uh, and then as we've discovered that, we've, we've dug in a little bit deeper and found uh, the timeless truths that we can take out of this letter and apply them here some 2,000 odd years later after the fact. Um, Then last week we had a special treat and our intern, Perry, took us through 1 Timothy chapter 4 and helped us to see the timeless truth that we need not only to look for good examples in our life, but that we need to be good examples in faith, love, and purity, and righteousness ourselves. but the more I've read through First Timothy as we've been going through the series, and the more I've looked at the ideas that are in First Timothy, I can't help but wonder: Was Timothy okay? Like, was he doing all right as a person? Was he emotionally stable? Because as you read through First Timothy, it seems that Paul is trying to talk him down off a ledge over and over again. That Paul is trying to lift him up and help him to, to figure out what's going on and to show him some ways to be encouraged. And I understand that completely because, you know what, ministry is hard. Being a leader in the church is hard. I, I, I know personally from my own experience how this can be. I've been at churches where every elders meeting monthly that we had, I would leave either in tears walking out of the building or start crying as soon as I got in my car because of just the things that were done and said in the frustration from this meeting. I've been in churches where if you didn't wear the right clothing, you were looked down upon and you were berated and you were laughed at and you were ostracized. I've been at places where it didn't matter what you did all week long. As long as you showed up for an hour on Sunday, everything was okay. I've been in those places. I've lived that life. I've been there. And as I read the words that Paul has written to Timothy, it feels like he's writing them to me. Do not be discouraged. Do not give up. Keep going. And it's because Timothy is this young man and he is dealing with complicated people. He's dealing with people that are older than him, with people that have had faith longer than him, with people that are coming from different areas and different places. And maybe, maybe Timothy has lost his confidence and what's going on. And in chapter four, Paul has encouraged Timothy to stand strong, to not let people look down on him because of his age. And in this chapter, Paul's going to even tell him at the end of the chapter, you know what? You need to take a drink with your meals to help your belly out. Now, I don't know what Timothy's sickness actually was. It doesn't tell us. It just says that he has a sickness uh, and that it would be good to take a little bit of wine with his supper for that. But I would not be surprised to learn that the sickness that he had was an ulcer from, from dealing with the people of the church and the stress of being a leader and all of the things that are going through with. Like that, that could have been what was making him sick. 
just leadership in general, because no matter where you are, leadership is a delicate balance. It's a balance that you have to do, and finding that balance may have been what was making Timothy sick, or or at least what was bringing him down and being discouraged so that Paul had to, to reach out and to say, it's okay, you're good. Don't let them look down on you because of your age. You're doing good things. You're worthwhile. But it was all because he was having to lead complicated people. Now, it doesn't spell it out in the Bible that he's leading complicated people, but I know he's leading complicated people for one very specific reason. All people are complicated. Every one of us. Every one of us is complicated. Every one of us comes from a different place. Every one of us grew up in a different household. Every one of us has a different worldview and a different paradigm and a different outlook. And we understand and see things in a different way each and every time. You know, there's an old uh, tongue-in-cheek saying that's been around for years and years. It says, the mission of the church would be simple if it weren't for all the people. But there's a big problem with that. The mission of the church is the people, but people are complicated. And when you deal with complicated people, the more you put in there, it takes a world-class balancing act to just not be crushed. And as you add more and more people to that group, the balancing act becomes more precarious. You have to balance things like generational gaps You know, we're dealing with people that were raised up in the 40s and 50s, as well as people that are right now being grown up and just the differences in the way the world does things. I look at my life and I think, man, when I was a kid, my mom would you like be home before the streetlights come on. That was the rule. Go do whatever you want. Be home before the streetlights come on. I was 10 years old. I've got an 11 year old now. I don't want him to leave my yard if he doesn't come and tell me exactly what he's going to be doing, how long he's going to be gone and where he's coming back from because the world is a different place. It is not the same as it was when I was a kid and dealing with those generational gaps becomes more and more challenging and more and more of a balancing act because we forget that the world is always changing. But it's not just the world that's changing, it's the technology that's changing. The things that my mom, my mom remembers when the first television came in to her neighborhood. You understand that? To her neighborhood. They would all go to somebody's house on Sunday night to watch a TV show because only one person in the neighborhood had a television. I've got four TVs at my house. That's not true. I've only got two, but you guys know the point. Like most of you, you're like, oh yeah, we've got multiple televisions and computers and phones that we can watch TV on and game systems we can watch TV on and everything else, everywhere else. But she remembers when they had to go to somebody's house to watch one show and then go home. And it's crazy to me that we're seeing that and the way the technology is changing. The fact that right now there are people sitting on their couch at home watching this message and being able to be a part of this because we were able to set stuff up because of this pandemic that happened last year that has changed the face of church and technology across the board. We're dealing with those balancing things. Timothy had to deal with balancing cultures. The, the Jewish culture and the different pagan cultures and the, the different places in Ephesus and all the people that were coming from everywhere. And he was trying to reach so many different types of people while staying consistent and steady with the mission of God. That truth and love are the most important things. And sometimes sharing the truth means correcting someone. 
Sharing the truth means pointing out that what you're doing isn't exactly right, but you've still got to do that while showing love at the same time, and it becomes a balancing act. And so Timothy, in so many ways, we're trying to lead people to unity and advancement of the kingdom. Striking a healthy balance is hard, guys especially in a world where we gravitate to polar opposites. We, we are a people that we get excited about something and we go for it. Uh, I could ask about college basketball, or I could ask about the NFL, or I could ask about how your feelings are on soccer. Uh, a couple of years ago, uh, I had a group of guys that we were the bearded brothers and we grew our beards all year long and didn't trim them because beards are polarizing. And whether you love them or you hate them, if you see someone with a long beard, you're tempted to go and say, what is going on? Either, man, you don't you know what a razor is? Or, dude, I like your beard. And we did it to promote adoption and, and the knowledge that, that kids need to get adopted and the fact that it costs so much in America to adopt a child. And so when Timo would come and say something about our beard, good or bad, we'd say, oh, I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you about this. Because people are polarized. We get excited about things and we latch onto them and we hold on to them. And it gets us unbalanced. We get fixated on that opinion. We gravitate further and further away from what balance would be. And, and we can do things to fix that balance. We can get in and we can read the Bible. We can read scripture. We can be pulled back and drawn back into line. But Paul is writing to Timothy at the church at Ephesus. Because it looks like they're very much in danger of slipping out of balance. In particular, with how they treat each other. And so Paul's going to give some practical advice to Timothy. Uh, practical advice that deals with some good everyday issues for that church at that time. Uh, and I'm not sure exactly what was going on. Maybe there was a debate happening. Um, maybe there were people on one side going, Timothy, we have to do it this way. If we don't do it this way, then we're doing it wrong. But there are people on the other side going, no, no, Timothy, we have to do it that way. Because if we don't do it that way, and it's going back to this and that, this and that, and he's just losing his mind. But Paul writes him some words to say that you don't need to be stuck in the middle. That it's okay that, that two things can actually be true at the same time. Did you guys know that? Two things can be true at the same time. A taco can be a taco, but it is also a sandwich. Okay, you understand what I'm saying? Two things can be true at the same time. A hot dog is also a sandwich, but it's not a taco. Two things can be true at the same time. You can love people and still bring them discipline and correction. You can be a group that helps and meets the needs of others while still being discerning and able to tell people, no, I can't help you right now. And Timothy has been entrusted with this big job. He's got the talents. He's got the skills. He's got the calling. He's been placed there by the apostle Paul himself. But even with all that past validation, he still needs some guidance and some encouragement to keep the faith and to press on. And I think it's going to be some good advice for us as well. So we're going to dig into the, the Bible now. We're going to be at 1 Timothy chapter 5. If you've got a Bible, you can turn there. Or you can use your phone to get there. If you don't have a good paper version of the Bible, over on the little gray stand by the door, there's some free Bibles. Grab one, take it home with you as a gift from us because we think everyone should have a good, easily readable version of the Bible. As we get started looking into this, though, I want us to realize something. Our, our church is a gathering. Our church is, is a community. 
but we also know that it's not a utopian community. There, there are things that, that go wrong. There are things that are frustrating. There are things that don't work out right every single time. There are ways that we begin to, to break apart. And so Paul's going to zone in on a few principles that can help. And the first is this. And it comes from the reality that there will be conflict sometimes and a need for correction. So here's what it is. It's, and we're going to read 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, and then I'll tell you what it is. It says, Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters with absolute purity. He says, treat one another like family. He doesn't say avoid conflict. He doesn't say avoid confrontation. He says, when you do, treat each other like family, with respect and with love. There are so many times that we are way too harsh in our criticisms of other people. It's not healthy. And being harsh is just lazy and it's ineffective. So Paul says, treat each other like family. Now, some of you out there right now may be thinking, well, Paul must not be talking to me because if you saw the way my family treats each other, then yeah, that's not what Paul wants me to do to other people. Well, I, I get that. There, there are some families that, that aren't working out the best because of decisions that people have made. But, um, but you get the, the idea. You get the, the point that, that Paul wants us to treat each other well. You know, all illustrations don't hold up for everybody. But, uh, you know, as, as a side note to that, though, if your family needs to be treated in a better way, maybe that needs to start with you. You know, just a little aside, you know, maybe, maybe you could figure that out. But, uh, but Paul does speak with this assumption that, that we are going to treat our fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters with an extra measure of grace, an extra chance to give them the benefit of the doubt. You know, one of those blood is thicker than water kind of ideas, respect and, and care. So maybe we should be challenged to aim for that vibe in, in our own family. But either way, whether you're in a, a great family and you're, you're already doing that or you need to, to get a little bit better at that, it's okay. Because in your family, there's going to come a time for the need for correction. No matter who you are, no matter how great things are, there's going to come a time when there's got to be some discipline involved. And when that comes, we need to deal with it in appropriate ways. We need to treat each other like a healthy family would in the way that we speak, in the way that we share, in the way that we point out those mistakes, not only in our tone, but in our words and in our actions. And then Paul goes a little bit deeper in, and I believe that this is one of those parts that is really meant for Paul and for the church, or for Timothy and the church at Ephesus, but he's going to get a little bit specific here. So let's dig back into the Bible. It's going to be 1 Timothy chapter 5, starting at verse 3, going all the way through verse 8. He says, give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn, first of all, to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and grandparents for this is pleasing to God. The widow who is really in need and left all alone puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray and to ask God for help. 
but the widow who lives for pleasure is dead even while she is still lives. Give the people these instructions so that no one may be open to blame. Anyone who does not provide for their relatives and especially their own household has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Okay. Take, let that sink in for a second. Um, we're going to discuss a couple of principles that, that Paul has brought up here because he brings a prominent issue that's facing Timothy in the church there at Ephesus. And that, that's not something we're unfamiliar with. You know, Timothy, like any other church leader, has an important role, an important task, an important job. And that is to lead in such a way that people don't get overlooked. To lead in such a way that the needs aren't being ignored. Because a lot of hurt feelings can happen very quickly when people start falling through the cracks and feeling unseen. But there seems to be an interesting dynamic for the widows in that congregation. And I want to make sure you can know this is not a stereotype of all widows. I don't believe that they only fall into these two groups. And I don't think that widows in the first century of the world and widows that living today have the same issues and the same problems. Widows aren't always vulnerable, but in the new Testament and in the old Testament, they were the, one of the most vulnerable portions of the community because of the restrictions that there were on how women could make ends meet, how women could, could make a living. And so they relied on their families. They relied on their, their male family members to provide that for them. And they stayed at home and took care of that. And, and so things have changed in the world over there. But they were, we're talking about a vulnerable portion of the community. Maybe it's not widows that we need to think about. Maybe it's the oppressed or the impoverished or, or children that we need to think of as we're looking at this vulnerable section of the community but the principle that should not get overlooked by the church here is that we need to care for those in real need. We need to care for those in real, real need. This should be a no brainer. This should be something that we just automatically do something that we don't even have to think of, but we so often need to be reminded, you know, the way that Paul writes it here, it is an assumed thing. It is written as a given statement, not if you decide to care for widows, or maybe if one day you think caring for widows might be a good idea, but it's no, when you care for the widows, this is what you do. It's a given. Take care of the vulnerable. But then he makes another point, and is that we need to focus our attention on those that are really in need. Meaning that not every widow's need was the same. It's a hard truth. It's, it's a difficult thing to discern, to look at someone and say, is, is your need real? Because not every homeless person's need is the same. Not every broken person's need is the same. Not every sinner, not every drug addict, not every orphan's need is the same. So how do we deal with that? How do we take that and apply it? What, what timeless truths can we bring in? And so Paul gave some filters to Timothy on how to choose which widows to help. And, and I think we can take those filters and we can apply them to our own discernment. Uh, the first filter was, if the family can take care of her, then she should not be in need. I, I want you to listen to the sharp message again that 
that Paul gives to the kids and grandkids. He says, put your religion into practice and take care of your own family. And then verse eight says, anyone who does not provide for their relatives and especially those in their own household have denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now I realize everybody's situation is different. Um, there are reasons, there are exceptions, there are excuses, there are explanations as to why you can't take care of those who are in our own family. I I know that they're there. I, I use them myself sometimes, but it needs to be said in order for those who are really in need to be helped, it would go so far if the families could take responsibility of caring for their own. Imagine what, how the world would be different. Imagine how less, much less blame would be spread if everyone decided that I'm going to take care of my blood. No matter what's going on, no matter where it's happening, no matter where they are in the world or what choices they're making, because they're my family and for no other reason, I'm going to help them out. I'm going to take care of them. It would pull the blame off the culture, off the system, off the bridges that have been burned long ago. Because the truth is, less people would be in need. I mean, less people would be in real need if more of us would step up and take care of our own families. If we could take a second to step back and not try to solve the world's problems and start at home, then the world would change from right where we are. So that's the first filter. If the family can take care of her, then they should do that. The second filter for the church to use isn't isn't much easier. It says, if the widow is really in need, and I'm going to paraphrase, it says, you'll recognize her by her faith and Christian fruit. Verse five, it says the widow who is really in need and left all alone puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray and to ask God for help. But the widow who lives for pleasure is dead even while she still lives. Here's a hard truth for us. Not every person is a person that we can help. Not every person It's a person we can help. Evidently, some of the widows in Ephesus were taking advantage of the system. We're taking advantage of people's charity. They're living a life described in verse 6 as living for pleasure. And Paul, I think, is reaching out to Timothy to say, look, I know that, that we said take care of widows. But right now, you're just wasting your time. And you're wasting your resources. You can't be responsible for everyone. Because it's impossible to help everyone. And it is okay to be discerning. It's okay to look and see what's going on and pull back and say, you know what? I see that you're just seeking the pleasures of this life. I see that you're just working the system and you can't help everybody. In fact, when you try to help everyone, it takes away resources from the ones that really need the help. And we can see that this is more than a conversation about just widows. These principles apply more broadly. But even as I'm saying this, I want to make sure that you're being careful and that you're not going to go out and say, hey, Patrick said I can't help you because you didn't come to church today. 
That's not what I'm doing. This is not a crutch. This is not something that you can go and say, you know what, I, I'm just going to be bitter. I'm not going to help people because the Bible says if you're not trying to pray every night, then, then you're not on my, my list. Because there are so many more powerful messages in the Bible about eating with sinners, about loving the outcast. You know, don't let this be your go-to scripture to define all of your benef- uh, benevolence and generosity that you're going to give out in the world. Because if you're not helping someone that's really in need, then your resources are wide open to help whoever else is available to be helped. This is just a filter to help you pick who you're going to help first. Like a triage nurse that's going on the battlefield and deciding which ones need help the most. Which ones need help immediately. This is a filter to help us create balance. It's a filter to help us understand that it's okay to be discerning. Because here's the thing, Paul knows this, and Timothy needs to know this, and you need to hear this. In case you didn't realize it, resources are limited. Even if you are as wealthy as Bill Gates, you still have a finite amount of resources. There's only so much time in your day and so much money that can be spared from doing the things that need to be accomplished to take care of your family. And we need to either get in and be more discerning so we can help the ones that really need help or we're going to get burned out and we're going to lose that balance. Because while our goal is to love and help all people, there comes a time when it's best to withhold that help, which is a lesson that really I, we need to process because too often in our world, we live on the extremes. We either say, you know what? This is what Patrick said, so I'm going to cut everybody off. I'm not helping anybody else. You made this bed. You lie in it. You're reaping what you sow. You got yourself into this mess. You can get yourself out of it. Whatever phrase that you want to use. Or you take the other side of that and say, you know what, Patrick said, really help the ones that really need help. And you're going to give them so much that all you're doing is helping them to make those decisions easier, that they're going to keep going in the bad way and you end up being an enabler. And so you need to find balance, moderation, as with everything in life. The widow who is really in need or the person who is really in need is going to put their hope in God. They're going to pray day and night. And if we can take care of our own family and we can show discernment, then a healthy church is going to be ready and prepared to be God's hands and feet to help them. And then Paul goes and he gives this this list because he's talking about these widows. He says, just in case you wanted to be a little bit more discerning, here's a list. And I'm going to read this list for you real quick, starting in verse 9. He says, no widow may be put on the list of widows unless she is over 60, has been faithful to her husband, is well known for her good deeds, such as bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the Lord's people, helping those in trouble, and devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. As for younger widows, do not put them on such a list, for when their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ, they want to marry. 
Thus, they bring judgment on themselves because they have broken their first pledge. Besides, they get into the habit of being idle and going about from house to house. And not only do they become idlers, but also busybodies who talk nonsense, saying things they ought not to. And so I counsel younger widows to marry, to have children, to manage their homes, and to give the enemy no opportunity for slander. Some have, in fact, already turned away to Satan. Yeah, that's a big list. I, I Even back then... They were making lists to, to organize things. I, I don't know if this was like hanging up on the wall at somebody's house and we're like, all right, go put Sally's name on there. You know, she finally got her 60th birthday. We can, we can do that. And, uh, you know, maybe they had a Google spreadsheet they shared around. I, I'm not sure, but they, they had filters that Paul gave them. Now, I'm not going to go through this list and be like, this is why Paul said this, because I have no idea. I don't know why he put the age restriction on. I don't know why he put the, the fidelity and the re- reputation and, and all of these things. I do know that when Paul wrote this, that it made sense to Paul and it made sense to the people that were getting the, the letter. But what I can see is that it's a, it's a list of things. It's a list of, of filters. It's a, a way to look and see as we're looking to help people what we can do and what we can look at in their lives to say, you're somebody that I can really help. It's about creating filters. It's not about exactly what this list says, but it's about creating filters. And that idea of creating filters shouldn't be taken lightly because we we do have a biased judgment. We are biased based on our upbringing. We are biased based on our paradigm and our worldview and the lenses that we look at the world through. And so we have to be careful with the filters that we're looking at. So, so that we don't make wrong or unfair judgments, but we also don't need to be naive either. It is okay to make judgments based on the behaviors of people that you've seen over and over again. We have to do it. We have to do it to keep ourselves safe. We have to do it to keep our family safe, to keep our hearts safe. It's okay to use the wisdom that you gain by watching the interactions of people to make judgments and to use them as a guide for judgment. Uh, it's, it's okay to give more to someone who is trying hard to do better. It's okay to help a little bit more to someone that's trying to make the godly choice and live the godly life and make the godly decision. It's okay to give more to those to, of, the, of that nature than the ones that are going out and saying, hey, I, I just drove up in my Lexus and I need to make sure I get some money to pay my light bill. And I know that I came last month and got money to pay my light bill and the month before that and the month before that, but nothing has changed in my life. It's a true story that happened to me at a different church that I was at every month. Lady would show up driving her big fancy car. Hey, could I get some money to pay the light bill? Thankfully, I wasn't in charge of that. And I would just say, hey, call this guy. It's not on me. But we've got to be discerning. We've got to look at what's going on because maybe she really was in need. And maybe she was just making bad decisions over and over again. I might be being too harsh. You know, that, that's fair. That is a, a statement that has been said about me more than once. Um, but I want to make sure you understand, I am not saying to lose your heart for the lost. By, by no means am I saying to lose your heart for the lost. I am not saying to stop searching for them. I am not saying to the, that if you make bad decisions, even multiple bad decisions, that you should be cut off. I'm saying we need to be discerning in who we help first. 
and then help everyone else. But it's a tricky balance to strike. It's a tricky thought to have. Every week here at Venture Church, we say go out and shine light in the dark places. And that, that's talking about getting in the trenches. That's talking about helping the people who are far from God. It's about taking some of our resources and pouring them into the loss and the hurt and the dying and the suffering. But there are people who need help. But you know what help we can give them the most? What light we can bring to them the greatest? It's real simple. It's, it's Jesus. It's his love. It's his grace. It's his understanding. Those are the ones that we can do. The real help that we can bring as followers of Jesus Christ is the love and truth and light of Jesus. And unless someone is ready to step out of darkness and into the light, there's really not much we can do to truly help. When Jesus sent out his disciples. He said, tell them three times. And if they don't listen to you, shake the dust off of your feet and keep going. Reach out with the light, reach out with the love, try to help. But if you see a pattern that you're just being taken advantage of, realize that your resources may be better used somewhere else. It's about striking a balance and balance is hard. Preaching this message right now is hard it would be so much easier to preach an unbalanced message to say, no, just go and give all of your stuff to everybody else. Just go and show the unconditional love of Jesus to everyone all the time, no matter what's going on, no matter how much they hurt you, no matter how many times they, they stake from you and keep doing what they're doing and don't try to grow and don't try to live and don't try to get any better because Jesus's love is unconditional. There's no conditions on it. And that's true. And in every way, in every light, that is true. But while it's unconditional and Jesus is going to love you no matter what you're doing, there are some things that he expects to happen when you realize how much he loves you. And when you grow to love him back. It is absolutely free to be loved by Jesus. Jesus. Even in your darkest times when you're making the worst decisions that you can possibly make, it is free to be loved by Jesus. But accepting that love is a commitment to live a life of repentance. A commitment to live a life that turns back constantly to God. To live a life of worship and a life of service. Not because we have to. But because when we realize how powerful the grace and love of Jesus is, we should be compelled to. And that is the most difficult work of the church. It's to strike that balance between explaining the free, beautiful gift of God and the fact that it should change you. The fact that it God loves you wherever you are, but he doesn't want you to stay there. He wants you to grow. He wants you to get better. Guys, we can live in a world where two things are true. They are not separate from each other. They are both true. We can be compassionate and fiercely loving toward broken people, the people who need Jesus but we can also be discerning and wise with our time and our resources.
So we need to treat each other like family. We need to help those who are really vulnerable in need, and we need to be discerning along the way. The, the rest of, of this passage talks more about that, and the, the final section talks more about leadership and, and how to be a good leader, and the, the group of, of men that are carrying the weight of that responsibility for the local church family need to set the tone and balance, not being harsh, but also being discerning. You know, I, I don't know what was going on in the church at Ephesus that made Paul sit down and write this part of the letter to Timothy. But I, I think it's fair to assume that Timothy wanted to do the right thing. That Timothy was working his heart trying to do the right thing. To care for all the people in need. To protect the truth and love that these people needed to experience. To have that balance for his family. For his, his people. He wanted them to thrive in Christ Jesus. But sometimes the devil works real hard to make what we're doing ineffective. He comes in and knocks us off balance and breaks the relationships because we're not treating each other with care. We're not treating each other like family. We're wasting our time and our resources because we're trying to follow what the world says and what our heart says instead of seeking the wisdom and discernment from God. And there's so much more that we could probably unpack from these verses. And there are so many more issues that, that face the church. But I think that these principles can go a long, long way to helping us keep together and focused on the mission, the mission that is the people. It's real simple. Treat each other like family. Help those who are in need and vulnerable and leave room for the godly discernment that'll tell you who to help first. Let's pray.